millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Ancestry.com.au. You've seen the faded sepia photograph, but how tall was your great-grandfather? How much did he weigh? What colour were his eyes? And did he really have a mermaid tattoo? These are the sort of details that can turn a family tree into a colourful and compelling personal history. And they're the sort of details you can sometimes discover in military and or police records at Ancestry.com.au. I use Ancestry constantly to research and write this podcast, and it could help you piece your past together too. For more information, go to Ancestry.com.au because there could be more to your story. It's an hour before dawn on Monday the 16th of December 1929 and about 5,000 miners are gathered in a 200-acre patch of paddock and tea tree scrub half a mile east of Rothbury Colliery in the Hunter Valley of New South Wales. One of those present is Jim Comerford. Jim is just 16 years old. Born in Glencraig in Scotland, he's been in Australia since 1922. That's when his coal mining father, who'd been blacklisted on the East Fife field, moved the family halfway around the world to Curry Curry for a better life. At age 13, Jim's dad pulled him out of high school because he had to earn a quid to help support the family. A talented writer, Jim briefly worked at the local newspaper. But the pay wasn't as good as what he'd be able to earn as a pit boy, so on his 14th birthday in September 1927, Jim's dad signed him up to work the mines. Each day for the next 18 months, Jim pulled on a black shirt, old pants, pit boots and cloth cap, and, carrying his crib tin and his water bottle, rode the company train with 250 other men and boys to work at millionaire coal baron John Brown's supermine, Richmond, Maine. Also in the crowd of miners that morning is Norman Brown. He's older than Jim, having been born out of wedlock in 1900 in the Sydney suburb of Annandale. His mother, Ellen Brown, was just 17 at the time, and soon after, she married Albert Kidd of Tokel in the Maitland area, and they moved there, with Norman going to Maitland High School before leaving to work the mines. Out of hours, Norman enjoys amateur theatre, having just a few months ago made the pages of the Maitland Daily Mercury in an article about a variety show put on by the Greta Thespian Club. Norman lives at home with his stepfather Albert, who works as a dairyman and horse handler, while his mother Ellen keeps the family home and tries to cope with her grief. Grief, that is, at the sudden death three years ago of Norman's younger sister Dorothy. Norman is now all that Ellen has, and yesterday, which would have been Dorothy's 19th birthday, she pleaded with her son to not attend this picket. But Norman, like Jim, like the other men in the crowd, have been out of work for nine months and have been pushed into a corner by the New South Wales state government. Premier Tom Bavin and his minister Reginald Weaver are determined to open the Rothbury Colliery using scab labour. This is the test case, with other minds to follow early in the new year. But Jim Comerford... Norman Brown and 5,000 other unionists are going to do everything in their power to make sure that doesn't happen. I'm Michael Adams and this is the second and final part of The Battle for Rothbury. 5,000 men marching and picketing Rothbury wasn't sudden or surprising. On Friday the 13th of December 1929, the Cessnock Eagle and South Maitland Recorder newspaper, the paper for the people, ran a story headlined, quote, All eyes on Rothbury. Free labourers arrive. Cessnock miners travel to Storm Centre. Newspapers all over the country told the same story. 
People were interested because just two months ago, the coal lockout had been a deciding factor in bringing down the anti-union nationalist federal government of Prime Minister Stanley Bruce. His successor, the ALP's James Scullin, had immediately backtracked on promises to end the lockout and prosecute coal baron John Brown for breaking industrial law. Instead, the federal Labor government had gone the conference route and that had failed. Meanwhile, New South Wales Premier Tom Bavin had ploughed ahead with his plan to take control of northern mines using what he called volunteer workers and what unionists called scabs. Under this plan, Rothbury was to open on Wednesday the 18th of December. In response, miners' union rhetoric was vitriolic. Thomas Bondi Hoare, who was the Northern President of the Miners' Federation, said that if the Bavin government went ahead with its scab plans, quote, we will lift the lid off hell. If anyone had any doubt this could mean violence, he said, quote, I can see the human derelicts being done to death by an infuriated body of workers fighting in the interests of the working class. The miners would start their mass picket of Rothbury at first light on Monday the 16th of December. Thousands of unionists would then be there around the clock, taking it in shifts to man the picket lines for as long as it took to, well, what they were going to do wasn't entirely clear. The New South Wales government had passed laws to make such mass picketing illegal. Trying to prevent scabs from entering Rothbury would also incur the wrath of the state. But after nine months being put through the ringer, the miners weren't about to just sit back and watch Rothbury be reopened. Because if it was, they'd lose their relief payments and their jobs might be gone for good. Army of 5,000 miners advancing on Rothbury, read the headline of the Daily Telegraph pictorial, in the early hours of that morning of Monday the 16th of December. Its article recounted what it called, quote, tense scenes as men begin their great midnight trek. Quote, sullen and silent, thousands of miners advanced on Rothbury late last night, afoot and in cars, buses and lorries, the van of the unemployed army reached the colliery at 11.45. By 12.30am, some 2,000 men were in the paddocks east of the pit, and thousands more were on the way. They had with them water bottles, crib tins and sugar bags of supplies. There was something of a carnival air with men playing mandolins and harmonicas. Fresh arrivals were welcomed as they sought out suitable spots for campfires. This mood darkened though when news photographers snapped men and boys brandishing tree branches as they stood beneath a skull and crossbones flag. Under the New South Wales government's repressive labour laws, the unionists feared these and other pictures might be used to identify and prosecute them. So miners escorted reporters and photographers away and ensured they left in their cars. At 4.30am, the Curry Curry miners arrived, with their pipe band playing The Campbells Are Coming. This stirring music got some of the men's blood right up and younger miners urged their mates to storm the colliery. In the crowd, pleading for peace, were two prominent state politicians. Jack Baddeley, deputy leader of the state Labor opposition, had started work in Hunter Valley coal mines at the age of 11. From there, he'd risen to become member for Cessnock and secretary for Mines and Minister for Labor in ALP Premier Jack Lang's state government from 1925 to 1927. The other prominent politician present was George Booth. He'd been born in England, where he'd also worked in the mines from the age of 11. He'd emigrated to Australia, where he'd worked in John Brown's Polor Main Mine before being elected in 1925 as Labor member for Newcastle and then Curry Curry. As for the Miners' Federation, the only member of the executive present was Northern Treasurer Arthur Teese, with Bondi Hoare and others who might have held some sway inexplicably down in Sydney. Although the bagpipes had fired up the men, they'd already been primed by the agitations of their arch-enemy, Reginald Weaver, who'd swooped into the area at the weekend to inflame tensions and to personally supervise the opening of Rothbury. 
Here are a few of the things he said. From information received, I believe that the demonstration tomorrow is not so much with the object of intimidating the free labourers, but to intimidate the Rothbury men from following their expressed inclination to return to work. While the miners had been victims of what they called basher gangs of police, Reginald Weaver used the same phrase to describe groups of union extremists that he alleged used violence to ensure that no one broke ranks. He told the newspapers he had 50 police at Rothbury and, quote, there is no fear of basher gangs getting in here. Reginald Weaver said he'd be there on the front line and, quote, the whistle will blow strong and hard on Wednesday morning. But most incendiary of all was his declaration that, quote, we will go the miners. While that statement, we will go the miners, was entirely in keeping with Reginald Weaver's combative personality, it's worth noting he later denied ever having said this. Regardless, its effect was the same. As State MP George Booth would later say, quote, When I arrived at Rothbury in the early hours of Monday morning, every man assembled knew that Mr Weaver would go the miners, and the cry amongst them was, If Weaver wants to go us, let him. We will go him. At about 5.40am, with the sun rising behind them, 5,000 Unionists began the short march down the dusty road to the Rothbury Colliery Gate. With so many men and no firm leadership, it's not possible to claim that they had common purpose in terms of what they intended to do when they got there. Here's what Jim Comerford had to say in an interview published in Weevils in the Flower, Wendy Lowenstein's 1981 oral history of the Great Depression in Australia. Quote, Everybody says we went to Rothbury for peaceful purposes, but that's a bloody myth. We went out to put the surface workings out of action, to destroy the possibility of scabs working the pit. That was Jim Comerford's perspective. But as desperate as the miners' situation was, some, perhaps even the majority, were there just to pick it. The leader of the march on Rothbury was Frank Sheridan of the Richmond Main Lodge and a former conscientious objector to the Great War. According to Jim Comerford, upon reaching the Rothbury Gate, Frank Sheridan, the pipe band and hundreds of men at the front of the march were met by a sole policeman. Face pale with fear, this constable said, quote, You can't come in here, boys. And he kept saying that over and over. Frank Sheridan told him, quote, Look, we don't want any trouble with you blokes. All we want to do is get in and talk to these scabs. With that, Frank Sheridan, the band and the other men went over the fence and police waiting in ambush rushed out of the scrub and attacked with batons. Then miners grabbed stones and rained them down on the cops. It was on, as police, including mounted troopers, beat the crowd with their truncheons, the worst violence occurring when the cops corralled miners into a corridor created by coal train carriages. Miners also pummeled police. Then the shooting began and the miners all ran for it. 50 or so men who'd gotten past the police line now retreated, and they were savagely beaten as they passed. That was Jim Comerford's version of that first skirmish, but there were many others. What happened at 5.45 that morning, and a few hours later, depended on who you were, where you were, which side you were on, and what you later remembered, read, or were even told to say. Minor Gwillem Williams, interviewed by Marjorie Biggins in 1987 for the New South Wales Bicentennial Oral History Collection, said, quote, Some men won't say what actually happened, but I will. The police done nothing, until some in the crowd picked up rocks and threw it and knocked the police. That started everything. They fired into the air and they fired into the ground. Then there was the police version. In this one, Superintendent Alexander Beatty and about 40 constables met with miners who'd forced their way onto the premises. He told them to go back, they refused, and so he ordered a baton charge. Then it was the miners who opened fire with three bullets narrowly missing constables, and only then did police return fire. 
The Daily Telegraph pictorial elaborated on this official police version. It claimed that 9,000 men had, quote, stormed the colliery, shouting, quote, We want Weaver. That bastard Weaver, where is he? According to the Daily Telegraph, after the miners fired, a policeman yelled, Out with your guns and into them. But Superintendent Beattie, the model of restraint, had cried, No, don't fire. In this version, a Sergeant Moore was beaten to the ground by miners and set upon by half a dozen attackers with sticks and stones. When a Detective Sergeant Ryan went to his aid, he too was knocked down and assaulted by men yelling, Kick his guts out. It was only now that Superintendent Beatty shouted, Fire! The Daily Telegraph, quote, Previously, the police had been instructed only to fire into the ground or into the air, and now the automatics came out and along the police lines swept the rattle of a volley. While miners Jim Comerford and Gwillem Williams differed in their opinions about who started the violence, both vehemently denied that any miners had guns or fired any shots, and no credible evidence was ever produced to support this claim, which ultimately was what justified the police firing. But this police version was unquestioningly echoed in the pages of the Sydney Morning Herald, The Sun and The Daily Telegraph. Dissenting views of this first confrontation only made it into the newspapers because politicians had been there and couldn't be silenced. Jack Baddeley's account was that as miners were confronting police, he'd come between the opposing forces, and this was supported by witnesses and a photo showing him on the colliery gate talking to police and miners. He said that he'd said to Superintendent Beatty and his constables, quote, Leave these men to me. I know them and I can handle them. I will get them outside. That was when, he said, a constable hit a miner over the head and then smashed him on the back of the head for good measure. Quote, I was struck and knocked to the ground. It was a cowardly and despicable action on the part of the policeman. This, Jack Baddeley said, was what led to the miners hurling rocks and the next thing he knew, police were firing their revolvers. Were they actually aiming at the ground and or firing above the heads of the crowd? Jack Baddeley, quote, They were shooting pretty close to me, and some of them, it seems, were shooting pretty low. As the miners scattered, three were hit by bullets, one in the shoulder, one in the wrist, and one in the leg. After that first skirmish, most miners retreated to the paddock though some few hundred stayed at the fence, taunting police and reportedly occasionally throwing rocks. But the vast majority of the men listened as Arthur Teese of the Miners' Federation executive pleaded with them not to do anything further that would risk their lives. Labor Daily newspaper quoted him as saying, Why be human targets? Be orderly. The eyes of Australia are on you today, despite the fact that the owners have broken every conceivable law. We know what you are confronted with. You are foolish if you think you can fight with your fists against the armed forces over there. Arthur Teese then moved a resolution saying the men rejected the government's savage attack on miners and restated their willingness to supply labour so long as their rewards were not violated. The Labour Daily newspaper reported how that went down with the miners. Quote, Blood had been spilt and the men now, in surging anger, rejected the motion. Miners crowded the road and, around 9.30, a roar went up as a car approached the mine. Here's how Jim Comerford remembered it when speaking to ABC radio reporter Stephen Long in 2006. Quote, A motor car appeared and turned into the gate, and the cry went up, it was Weaver, the Minister for Mines, the most hated man that the miners ever had anything to do with. But it wasn't Reginald Weaver in the car. He was inside Rothbury, marshalling a handful of constables, mine managers and 40 free labourers, aka scabs, to defend the colliery office should the miners break through the police line. The car approaching Rothbury was actually carrying two government mine inspectors and a consulting engineer named John McGeechee. 
The colliery gate had been pulled off its hinges and lay on the road, and when one of the inspectors got out of the car to clear the path, the mob attacked, smashing the vehicle's windows and its body panels. That damage is clear from photos. But according to the Daily Telegraph, quote, Here they were rushed by the miners, firing bullets and hurling stones. Every window of the car was shattered, the back tyres riddled and the bodywork damaged in a few seconds. Mr McGeechee received slight cuts and a bullet graze across the back of his neck. No newspaper reporter sought out John McGeechee to check this, and indeed the official police report made no mention of any bullet graze. Police constables rushed in to defend the car, and there was a further battle down the fence line. Here's how Jim Comerford remembered it to ABC Radio. Quote, there was actually hand-to-hand fighting going on, and the miners were getting the best of it, driving the police back, and again, somebody issued the order to draw the guns. Shots rang out. Here's how Labor Daily reported that moment. Quote, a tall, dark constable, with his revolver drawn, held back the crowd, which retreated. Taking aim at one man, Wally Woods, who was moving back, the constable fired and... Jim Comerford told ABC Radio, quote, I was running beside Wally Woods and then the bullet, the bullet hit him. It's the kind of thing you see it and you don't believe you're seeing it. The choked noises in his throat, his feet drumming the ground, the blood running from his throat. And I saw the bloke that did it. He had leather leggings on, police uniform, and he deliberately aimed the revolver at Wally Woods. And I couldn't believe I was seeing such a thing happen. As bullets flew and miners ran, another man, David Brown, 42, was shot in the spine. He would also say he'd seen a policeman aiming at him. Since the initial skirmish, Norman Brown, whose mother hadn't wanted him to go to the picket, had been playing it safe by staying well clear of the front line. Just before the second round of shooting started, he'd been sitting with mates playing cards. When they heard gunfire, he said, quote, It is time we made a move out of this. As more shots crackled, he and a man named James Deaver got up and ran. James Deaver, looking back, said he saw a policeman aiming at him. He kept running. Next thing he knew, Norman Brown threw his hands up and fell to the ground. The terribly wounded man said words to the effect of, I've been hit by a stray one. Norman Brown was carried to a shed where he was conscious but bleeding badly, with the bullet found inside his clothing. It had passed through him. There was a bloody hole in his stomach and another one in a buttock. Men took him by car to Brankston, but Norman Brown was dead before ambulance men got him to Maitland Hospital. Here's how Labor Daily reported the shooting. Quote, Instantly, every one of the thousands on the roadside jumped to their feet. A shrill whistle sounded and immediately the police rushed forwards and opened fire. David Brown and Norman Brown, who were standing a hundred yards from the scene at the gates and well clear of the road, were both critically wounded. They were made the target of one cold-blooded bluecoat who, those standing by declare, took deliberate aim at them. By the time the miners retreated, the police had fired 122 shots. Norman Brown was dead. His mother, Ellen, bereft at having lost her only son just three years after losing her only daughter. 22-year-old Wally Woods would recover. He was lucky because the bullet in his throat had come within a fraction of an inch of his jugular vein. David Brown was crippled by the bullet lodged near his spine and would spend years in and out of hospital before eventually becoming bedridden. Six other miners would recover from gunshot wounds to shoulders, legs and wrists. Another 20 to 25 Unionists suffered other injuries, though that toll was probably higher because some miners sought medical treatment in secret. On the police side, Sergeant Moore's scalp wounds were treated in hospital and he was sent home. Five other officers with minor injuries didn't require hospital treatment and either remained on duty or were sent home for the rest of the day. While the fighting was over, the new battle for Rothbury, this one for the truth, had begun in the federal and state parliaments and in the conservative and leftist newspapers. 
Striking photos from Rothbury ran in the Daily Telegraph on the morning of Tuesday the 17th of December. They showed the men massing, the men retreating, the damage to the mine inspector's car, Jack Baddeley trying to calm the miners and police, and Detective Sergeant Ryan holding his pistol out horizontally after being attacked. These images, though, weren't from the Telegraph's photographer. His camera had reportedly been smashed by angry miners who also mobbed other newspaper men. The Daily Telegraph reported the exciting story of how it got the pictures. Quote, A Sydney visitor who happened to be at the colliery and to have a camera with him seized the opportunity to get a complete pictorial record of some of the most dramatic incidents in Australian industrial history. Braving bullets and other missiles, he went into the front line and set his camera clicking. The difficulty was then to get his negative to Sydney. By a clever ruse, he got through the cordon of miners and an urgent message to the pictorial set the newspaper organisation going. The newspaper's plane was dispatched and picked up the negatives at a Newcastle aerodrome. That was all very exciting and worthwhile because the visitor's camera had also captured the image that ran as the full front page of that day's Daily Telegraph. The photo showed a constable firing a pistol into the air, a cloud of smoke puffing around the barrel with three officers in the background. It's among the most dramatic news images ever published in Australia. But while the photos on the inside pages of the Daily Telegraph are natural looking, the front page picture evokes a strange feeling immediately because to the modern eye, it looks faked. The constable's face is like a mask and his gun, the hand holding it, his wrist and arm all look unnatural. Everyone I've showed it to immediately says it looks dodgy. But I asked the opinions of two graphic designers who between them have half a century of experience in magazines, advertising and photo manipulation. One initially thought the entire image was an illustration. When I confirmed for him that it had been represented as a photo, he said he thought the constable's face had been sharpened and the gun hand and arm had been altered. The other designer sounded a note of caution, saying what appeared to be manipulation might have been caused by distortion during scanning and that the only way to be sure would be to personally examine the original negative. That, of course, wasn't possible for me, but it was back at the time, and it's what the state government actually did, subpoenaing the negative which showed no gun in the man's hand. The Daily Telegraph had run a front-page photograph purporting to show a policeman firing, and it was a fake. The question was, why? The most likely reason was because it made a dramatic front page and that would sell a lot of newspapers. But it also appeared to confirm the initial claim that police had fired over the heads of the men. What's mystifying to me is that the state government and the police didn't challenge the photo for more than two months after it was published and never followed through on questioning the Daily Telegraph about this forgery. You can see this Daily Telegraph front page at the Forgotten Australia website. On the night of the Rothbury riot and shootings, Prime Minister James Scullin said, quote, it is deplorable that the dispute should have developed into violence and that injuries should have been inflicted by Australians one upon another in an industrial dispute. It was deplorable, but his statement also ignored that the one death and all the other serious injuries had been suffered by one side only. To calm the situation, the Chief Justice of the Federal Arbitration Court called another compulsory conference between Commonwealth and state governments and coal owners and union leaders. New South Wales Premier Tom Bavin issued a point-blank rejection by Telegram. Under the unfortunate Daily Telegraph headline, Bavin sticks to his guns, the Premier was reported to say, quote, the whole government is appalled that the action of the men should have resulted in the death of one of their number. The violence appears to be due mainly to the counsels of irresponsible militants who are determined to use this occasion for promoting their revolutionary theories. 
I have no desire to say anything which would tend to inflame the feelings of the men, but it is only right that I should make it clear that the government cannot be deflected from its course. The day after the shooting, the conservative newspapers lined up behind the official version of events. A few examples from The Sun. Quote, the police are emphatic that they were forced to fire with the greatest grimness to save themselves from being overwhelmed and trampled by the immense weight of numbers. Here's the Sun newspaper again. Quote, Superintendent Beatty, a commanding giant with unflinching courage, was an inspiration to the men. Wherever the fight was most severe, he was to be found, taking his share of the knocks. The Sydney Morning Herald, quote, The police, for a long time, attempted to reason with the men, but finally had to draw their batons and drive the crowd back foot by foot. Finally, all other means having failed, the police drew their revolvers and fired a dozen or fifteen shots over the heads of the mob and others into the ground. The Sydney Morning Herald again. Impartial observers state the police showed remarkable forbearance, postponing the drawing of batons and revolvers to the last moment, and even then taking deliberate aim to ensure that no serious injury should be done to anyone. The Sydney Morning Herald actually did quote an unnamed minor about the event, but only to endorse the police story. Quote, If those chaps were really firing to hit us, they were the worst shots that ever could have been born. Five days after the shooting, the official police report emphatically denied that any order to shoot in the air had been given. Quote, Superintendent Beatty instructed the police to draw their revolvers and fire into the ground. The superintendent's object in doing this was to avoid any bullets going over the heads of anybody and which might injure people who were in the background. The official story then was that at least nine men had received bullet wounds, one fatal and at long range, because bullets had ricocheted off the ground. That anonymous miner quoted by the Sydney Morning Herald actually did have a point. 122 shots had been fired, and if all the police had been firing into the crowd, the death and injury toll would have been far higher. Yet, it also seemed improbable that so many serious injuries were caused by ricochets. In his essay titled Murderous Coppers, Police, Industrial Disputes and the 1929 Rothbury Shootings, published in History Australia in 2012, historian Richard Evans wrote, quote, The story that police had twice fired into the ground as a warning is hard to credit. In the course of extensive research on policing in the state, including archival material on training and operational instructions, I have found no reference to the New South Wales Police Force firing warning shots into the ground or advice to do so. If it happened at Rothbury, it seems to have been the first and last time. With this in mind, what seems most likely to me is this. Superintendent Beatty and his police constables, official accounts put the number at 50, though state politician George Booth said there were three times that many, were facing thousands of angry miners and did have reasonable cause to fear for their lives. Even so, most police were also unwilling to shoot unarmed men. So, in their panic, some cops fired up, some fired down, and some fired at the miners. The fieriest scenes around this question were in New South Wales State Parliament the day after the Rothbury riot. Deputy Labor leader Jack Baddeley repeated his story of being hit by the policeman and of seeing cops fire low, while George Booth swore to God that miners had never fired a shot. Labor leader Jack Lang asked, quote, what answer has this government to give the people when they ask it why it ordered Australians to shoot down their fellows in an industrial dispute? It is a revelation to the people that in this country it is still possible for a government to compel the workers at the point of the revolver to work for wages lower than those prescribed by a lawful tribunal and to shoot and kill those of its people who resist such unlawful demands. As for Reginald Weaver, Lang said, quote, Everything he has said 
Everything he has done has been either a taunt, a sneer, or a challenge to the men. If the unfortunate miners are to be shot down like dogs, what is to be done to the swashbuckling minister who, with an army of police, went among the miners while they were yet peaceful, rattling the sabre? We will go the miners, was the taunt he flung at them. As if on cue, Reginald Weaver entered the parliament to cries from one opposition member, quote, here comes the murderer. Reginald Weaver offered no apologies, even when he was howled down, falsely claiming Norman Brown had been shot while trying to rip up a rail line. This is what Reginald Weaver said of the police's actions, quote, I was present when he, that is Superintendent Beatty, told every constable that he was not to fire unless he was overwhelmed, and they fired only when they were being overwhelmed by sticks and stones and with uttered threats of what was going to happen to them when the mob reached their objective. Those men went to Rothbury to destroy the mine and to take life. What's interesting is that Reginald Weaver didn't say Superintendent Beatty had ordered his men to fire into the air or into the ground. Reginald Weaver also claimed that if the miners had gotten to him, quote, I would not have been alive to tell the tale. Actually, that probably was true. This is what miner Gwillem Williams said when interviewed in 1987 for the New South Wales Bicentennial Oral History Collection. Quote, I do think the police did a good job that day. A lot will condemn them, but we have a law in this country and the police had a job to do. Without them, he added, quote, you can just visualise what would have happened. As the politicians argued that Tuesday, 6,000 miners and Hunter Region locals thronged the streets of Greta to pay their last respects to Norman Brown. And at Redfern's Everly workshops, more than 1,000 workers stood bareheaded to remember their fallen comrade and to listen to a speech from Mr E. Miller of the Trades and Labor Council in which he said, quote, His only crime was that he would not work for less wages, but for that he was shot. Mr Miller said, A suggestion has been made that the bullet ricocheted. This was met with derisive laughter. Mr Miller continued, quote, We will not see the miners bludgeoned into submission after nine months' heart-rending struggle. Someone in the crowd shouted, Give us guns. To the cheers of the men, Mr Miller announced that a mass meeting would be held that night in Hyde Park. Quote, We will show the public and press how we feel in this terrible effort to starve the Cessnock and Maitland miners. That night, unionists and supporters assembled in Hyde Park. Like Rothbury, this was another example of the battle for truth. Jock Garden, Secretary of the Labor Council, was said to have claimed there were 70,000 people present. The Sydney Morning Herald reported 20,000. The Daily Telegraph, gleefully echoing police claims, ran a front-page photo of the crowd with the admittedly funny headline, quote, not the Eden of Garden, only 7,000 were there. For two hours, the people in Hyde Park listened to speeches. Jock Garden said Norman Brown's death was, quote, wanton murder. The Railway Workers' Union secretary said the armed forces should be used to protect miners against the police. A representative of the industrial workers of the world said all unionists should stop everything and that if the Comrades building the Sydney Harbour Bridge went on strike, the state government would cave and give the miners everything they wanted. With the speeches over, there was a call for a march on state parliament. Most people filtered away, but thousands made for Macquarie Street, only to be confronted by 200 police who tried to force them back to Hyde Park. You don't have to read between the lines of even the conservative newspaper reports to get a picture of police on a spree. Here's the Sydney Morning Herald, quote, Then they drew their batons and struck at the heads and shoulders of those who were resisting them. There were several further baton charges and forays to chase pickets into laneways. The Sun's reporting made the brutality even more explicit, quote, 
Nothing happened till the police, as though tired of being kept about for so long doing nothing, made their first sudden raid on the crowd. They drew their batons, which they did not hesitate to use on any who loitered. In a few seconds, the edge of Queen's Square was almost deserted. The remnant of the crowd was now around St. James Square. Here, for some time, the police made swift charges on the loiterers. These newspapers reported a few people had been hurt badly enough to seek hospital treatment. But the Labour Daily gave far more detail. Quote, In one of the fiercest baton charges ever staged by police in Sydney, innumerable people were struck down in Queen Square last night. Excited constables, their conception of the position enlarged by the happenings at Rothbury, ruthlessly batoned men and women. It named the citizens treated at Sydney Hospital and listed their injuries, including a husband and wife, him with concussion, and her with shock and abrasions. All night, the Labor Daily said, people had visited their office to show their injuries and describe the beatings. One of the victims was Anna Carey, a well-known poet and writer for Smith's Weekly, who was making her way to Circular Quay with a male friend when confronted by two policemen. The cops told them, get the hell out of here, before laying into them with batons. Him first, then her. Several victims made complaints, and here's how the state government's chief secretary, Frank Chaffee, responded. Quote, I think the police ought to be commended for the way they stopped a determined attempt to rush Parliament House. He said he would follow up on complaints of brutality, but, quote, I am not going to accept one-sided evidence. As for women being hit... Any lady was free to complain, but, quote, personally, I don't believe the police did any such thing. The next day, in state parliament, Labor whip Mr M. A. Davidson labelled Premier Bavin's regime, quote, a government of bashers, baton wielders and batterers. That same day, there were two further developments. Rothbury began operations again, using scab labour, and this led to threats of strikes at coal mines in other states. With the actions of the New South Wales government now threatening industrial unrest at a national level, the Commonwealth Arbitration Court stepped in. That same day, the 19th of December, Justice Beebe issued an interim award for opening all of New South Wales's locked coal mines and the resumption of work under the pre-lockout wages and conditions with union members to be given their jobs back. Premier Bavin refused and said his government wouldn't comply because there were no actual strikes in other states, so the Commonwealth Arbitration Court had no constitutional power in this matter over New South Wales. Rothbury, he said, would keep working while his government challenged the interim award in the High Court. On Monday the 23rd of December in Sydney, the Chief Justice of the High Court, Sir Adrian Knox, said he'd hear arguments that week over Christmas and New Year, if necessary, due to the urgency of settling the matter. Sir Adrian Knox also said that the full High Court would judge the matter in Melbourne from the 6th of January, saying that this was the earliest possible date he could convene all the High Court justices. That was all well and good, except for the inconvenient fact that Sir Adrian Knox should have, right then and there, recused himself from this matter. That's because he'd long been one of coal baron John Brown's closest friends, with the mining millionaire taking him out on fishing trips and even naming one of his beloved racehorses after him. But it wasn't until a King's Council representing the miners angrily questioned Sir Adrian Knox about his conflicts of interest that the Chief Justice on the 28th of December retired from the case, admitting he was personally acquainted with a number of coal owners and had, before his appointment to the bench, represented them in legal matters. The Australian public wouldn't have to wait long to learn just how personally acquainted Sir Adrian Knox was with coal baron John Brown. For the miners, betrayed politically at all levels, persecuted by the police and delayed justice by the law, Christmas 1929 was a bleak one, with no money and nothing to celebrate. Things didn't get any better as the new decade began and the knock-on effects of the Wall Street crash started to be felt around the world. 
On the 7th of January, the miners on the northern coalfields organised to defend themselves against the forces of Premier Tom Bavin's Basher government. In Curry Curry, 400 war veterans established what they called the Labour Defence Army. Premier Bavin wasn't letting this stand. On Wednesday the 15th of January 1930, Premier Bavin's Basher government was revealed in all of its brutality. From about 5.30am, 2,000 Unionists gathered in Curry Curry for a protest march, for which they had a permit. 24 local Curry Curry police marched beside the men to ensure proceedings remained peaceful. It was all over, with most marchers leaving for home when the police basher gang arrived at 8am. Here's the Sun newspaper describing what happened next. Quote, The flying squad arrived from Cessnock and, jumping from the lorries and motorcycles which brought them, batons were drawn and the men charged. There was a wild scamper, men rushing in all directions. Women screamed and a couple fainted while the excitement lasted. The attack lasted about 10 or 15 minutes and then all was quiet again. The Newcastle Morning Herald and Miners Advocate newspaper interviewed numerous witnesses, all of whom said there had been absolutely no provocation. The newspaper reported, quote, The men said that innocent people had been injured. They had no complaint to offer against the Curry Curry police. They stated that members of the flying squad had made a wild rush with drawn batons and that some of the police who had been in attendance all the morning shouted at them to desist. Tellingly, the police made no arrests at Curry Curry. But that was just the start. Throughout the rest of the day, the flying squad roved around the South Maitland coalfields, breaking up marches at Abermain, Ellalong and elsewhere with more violent, unprovoked baton attacks that injured a lot of people and struck terror into an entire region. The Sun newspaper reported the mood was ugly. Quote, feeling is at fever heat. Some of the men are crying enough. The Sun almost criticised the police's actions too. Quote, there has been much complaint against the action of the police in attacking suddenly and, it is said, without provocation. Then it corrected itself. The police, however, were acting in accordance with Cabinet's decision to break up what are regarded as illegal gatherings. Under the Massed Picketing Act, men are not allowed to assemble in groups and the assemblage of 3,000 miners this morning was regarded as distinctly outside the law. The Labor Daily reported, quote, in a wild orgy of baton charges by flying squads of the police on the coalfields today, scores of defenceless and law-abiding men were clubbed into insensibility. Every attack was unprovoked and it was launched by the police without warning. 100 constables under Superintendent Beatty and Inspector McKay were savage in their assault on the men. Overall that day, police made 10 arrests. And all of these miners were charged under those anti-picketing laws, as opposed to being charged with anything actually serious. The state government also used relief as a weapon. One example of this occurred on Thursday the 16th of January, the day after the Flying Squad's savage attacks. The Sun newspaper, quote, Carrying out the instructions received from the Chief Secretary's Department to give food relief orders only to those people who observe the law, officers of the Department of Labour and Industry at Curry today refused relief to approximately 200 men. Approximately 800 men make application at Curry each week for relief. How it was decided who was a lawbreaker and who wasn't isn't known because no one had been charged at Curry the day before. What's obvious is that by punishing 25% of Curry's unemployed men, the state government was also punishing their wives and children and threatening them with starvation. And at the federal level, the miners suffered another defeat when, on the 23rd of January, the High Court ruled 4-1 to one, that the interim award was unconstitutional there would be no further legal relief and for the next five months, brutality would continue on the coal fields. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In the third week of February 1930, the Maitland District Coroner held an inquest into the death of Norman Brown. The bullet that killed Norman had been found in his clothing, and this was produced. In terms of evidence, it was absolutely worthless by modern standards. William McBlain, secretary of the Richmond, Maine Miners Lodge, said he'd been handed the bullet by another miner about 10 minutes after the shooting. He kept it in his coat pocket and in his salt cellar for three weeks before giving it to James Connell, a Miners Federation inspector. McBlain said the marks on the bullet hadn't been there when he'd first been given it. He said the bullet had been smooth then, but had been handled by many people, and that he thought the scratches on it were caused by their fingernails. The government's ballistic expert said no, the bullet had been damaged by hitting something hard, as in the ground, before it ricocheted and went through Norman Brown. Conflicting witness testimony and medical opinion couldn't even conclude whether Norman Brown had been facing the colliery or running away when he'd been shot, and which was the entrance and exit wound on his body. Among the witnesses to testify was minor James Deaver, who said of that day at Rothbury, quote, Brown and I were standing in the middle of the road. I heard a lot of shots being fired, but I did not hear any bullets whistling around. I saw one policeman aiming direct at me, so I off again. Minor James Lewis asked whether he'd seen a policeman pointing a gun in his direction, replied yes, that he'd seen one policeman pointing a gun at the crowd and several others pointing in the air. Another minor, Reginald Blackwell, said police only started firing when the men were retreating. Norman Brown's last words about being hit by a stray bullet the coroner said, were proof that it had been an accidental shooting. The coroner concluded, quote, There is no doubt in my mind that any shots fired were not fired directly into the crowd, but into the ground or into the air. Evidence put forward that policemen fired deliberately at the retreating crowd after they had crossed the road onto the vacant ground is incredible. As found in the handwritten coronial record at ancestry.com.au, Norman Brown's cause of death was found to be, quote, gunshot wound accidentally received during the quelling of a riot by police, he not then being a rioter. Since the release of part one of this episode, Norman's second cousin, Jennifer Richards, has been in touch to provide a little of the background you've heard about him. She also said that the tragic deaths of Norman and Dorothy at such early ages reverberated through the family for decades. By June 1930, after 15 months out of work and facing a second brutal winter, this time in ever-worsening Great Depression conditions, the Miners' Federation voted lodge by lodge to go back to work on the northern coalfields, accepting the cut pay and reduced conditions. They'd fought long and hard for 15 months, but had been beaten, at least for now. But for the forces who'd arrayed against the miners, it was a hollow victory. They hadn't been able to open any other mines after Rothbury, and the lockout had cost the owners and governments millions in profits, revenue and taxes. Four months before the miners went back to work, in mid-February 1930, coal baron John Brown gave a rare public comment in which he predicted his triumph. Asked if he was going to open his Richmond, Maine mine and call for free labour, his response was that of a man born and bred to believe that his interests and the interests of the nation were inseparable. He said, quote, I tell you this, I am fighting for Australia and not for myself. What length of life have I got that I should do this for myself? I am fighting for the very men who would abuse me. I am not in the habit of saying what I will do, but I do it. 
You do not think that I intend to keep my minds closed forever. John Brown never saw Richmond or any of his minds reopen because he died on the 5th of March at the age of 79. At least one newspaper speculated that the stress of the coal lockout had contributed to his death. Certainly, the past 15 months, combined with the coal industry's now years-long slump, had hit the Baron's finances. When he died, his assets were just over £640,000, down from an estimated £2 million a few years earlier. But now Australia learned just how much he'd valued Sir Adrian Knox because John Brown made him chief beneficiary in his will, leaving him half of his coal business and all of his racehorses. Sir Adrian Knox resigned the High Court to enjoy his newfound wealth, but himself died just two years later. As for New South Wales Premier Tom Bavin, he was defeated by Jack Lang in November 1930. But his hated minister, Reginald Weaver, retained his blue ribbon seat in Neutral Bay. And it wasn't long before he was praising the fascist new guard whenever he had the chance, saying that all young men should join its ranks and that it was a smart defence against foreign-led communists who were infiltrating New South Wales. Here's what he said at a meeting in Eastwood on the 20th of October 1931. Quote, Although I must say that they have been somewhat flamboyant in their methods, I say thank God for the new guard. The new guard is an expression of the state's better-minded citizens against the inroads being made by red raggers. And the only way to treat these rebellious ruffians is to march them out of New South Wales or into jail. The best known of the New Guard's flamboyant methods, of course, came six months later when Francis de Groot slashed the ribbon at the opening of the Sydney Harbour Bridge to deprive Premier Jack Lang of the honour. But the New Guard's darkest moment came on the 6th of May 1932 when eight members of its fascist legion stormed into union leader Jock Garden's house and bashed him savagely. Soon after Jack Lang was sacked just a week later, Reginald Weaver found himself back in power as part of the United Australia Party, Country Party, Coalition State Government. He was appointed Health Minister and had a controversial term and would be eventually dropped by Premier Bertram Stevens for, among other things, having a, quote, needlessly sharp tongue. Federally, Prime Minister James Scullin having been elected in a landslide in October 1929, lost power in a landslide in December 1931, his failure to resolve the coal lockout contributing to his downfall, along with a corruption scandal that engulfed his treasurer, Red Ted, and, of course, the worsening effects of the Great Depression. As for the miners, well, they're all gone now. One of the last was Jim Comerford, after the events of 1929, Jim wrote an account of Rothbury for a newspaper called The Young Worker and won a 15-shilling prize, which he used to take his best girl Mabel to the pictures. They'd get married in 1935 and be together for the next 70 years. During his long life, Jim would become a prominent unionist and rise to be the National General Secretary of the Miners' Federation. He was also active in education, the peace movement, and advocating for the unemployed. Using that talent for writing that had seen him briefly work for the Curry Curry newspaper, Jim wrote or co-authored books about the coal industry and local history. His last book, Lockout, recounting the events at Rothbury and telling the story of his life, was published in 2006, shortly before he died at the age of 93. While John Brown, once one of Australia's richest and most powerful men, is all but forgotten, you can see a statue of Jim Comerford at the Jim Comerford Memorial Wall in Aberdare and borrow one of his books at the Jim Comerford Coalfield Library at Curry Curry. His biography, Working Class Warrior, written by Barbara Heaton, was published in September 2019. 
To learn more about Rothbury, I recommend you check out the 1986 ABC documentary, Who Killed Norman Brown, which is available via the ABC's website. And also, have a look at Jason Van Genderen's 2007 documentary, Lockout, which you can rent on Vimeo for just over $5. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. For more information about Forgotten Australia, go to ForgottenAustralia.com and the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. This podcast was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.